today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. We have typically around 500 to 1,000 different species of bacteria in our gut, out of which 10 to 15% of those in a healthy gut are quote-unquote bad guys, but they seem to serve some sort of purpose, same as in a rainforest has some predators and they keep things in balance. But the key and the important thing is maintaining that diversity because what they've found is that the more diverse your gut is, then the less inflammation you have in your body. And inflammation is like the kerosene to the fire. It is the driving force for every single chronic degenerative disease on the planet. If we can turn off inflammation, that is the key. Today, we're talking with Dr. Vincent Pedre, the author of Happy Gut and the Gut Smart Protocol, which is a 14-day food-based approach to healing gut conditions like leaky gut. You'll love learning from Dr. Pedre about the seven different types of leaky gut symptoms and how environmental toxicants can play a role in gut health. You'll also love hearing about his mind-body approach to helping people heal from a multitude of chronic conditions. Let's get into it. Before we get started, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you're a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create your free account today. While you're there, you can also try out our latest tools like the meal plan generator and lab shops, which make practicing functional medicine easier than ever. So cool. Now let's start the show. Dr. Pedre, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm thrilled that you're here. You've been practicing internal medicine for 20 years. You have an incredible clinic where you do functional medicine for folks, but you wrote two books on gut health. Why is that? It goes back to my own journey. And the reason that I ended up in functional medicine, even after going to a traditional medical school and training in internal medicine, I realized that that wasn't the path that I wanted. It didn't speak to what I really felt health and wellness should be. And I was looking for a way to actually treat the root cause of people's issues rather than give them Band-Aids with medications. And now granted, there are places and times for medications, but a lot of times they just act as Band-Aids to mask the underlying real issues that are going on with the person, which are usually rooted in the gut as well as lifestyle, the way they live their lives. I always had a more holistic point of view to health. I had started meditating and doing breath work and yoga before I went to medical school, and then I kept that up throughout medical school. I was already knowing that I wanted to practice in a different way. I just didn't know at the time that it was going to actually involve the gut. And even though it was right under my nose the whole time, because I had grown up with a lot of gut issues, lots of sensitivity in my stomach, gut pains, bloating, gas, 
all sorts of things. And then compounded by the fact that I was on 20 plus rounds of antibiotics as a teenager from the age of 10 to 19, that basically destroyed my gut microbiome leading to leaky gut and food sensitivities to some of the biggest and most insulting foods that I was eating at the time, which were mainly centered around wheat and dairy. It was really partly inspired by my own journey, but also influenced by my philosophy that health is a holistic endeavor that really requires a mind-body-spirit approach. And that includes nutrition, that includes lifestyle, that includes relationships, relationship to self, relationship to others, trauma therapy. It was just a natural extension. And when I came upon my first book, Happy Gut, actually, my mother had just passed away in 2012. And I was 38 years old. I was pretty young. And when you lose a parent, you start really asking yourself, what are you here to do? What is your life about? What is the legacy that you can leave behind? And at that point, I realized I was paying attention to everything else, but not really giving credence to what was right under my nose, literally <laughs> right here, was the gut. And I had been working with gut patients. Now I'd been doing functional medicine for a couple of years. And I knew that the gut was the foundation, was important to everything. I was seeing people's asthma reverse, their allergies reverse, their skin rashes disappear, their energy come up, all by working on the gut. That's when I decided that I was going to write a book about the gut. And Happy Gut was actually my first book was born over Memorial Day weekend, about almost two months after my mom had passed away. I sat down for an entire weekend and conceived my structure and the idea behind my first book, putting together everything that I had been doing with patients. And then go forward many years, I worked with so many gut patients over the years that that really led me to write another book on the gut that I felt one needed to update people on the latest and newest on gut health because it's so rapidly evolving and our understanding of the gut microbiome and gut health. And also take my experience with working with so many patients and understanding that really what I was doing in my clinic was personalizing their approach, that everything was basically tailored to the person. And the question I asked myself was, can I do this for the general public? Could I take what I do with my patients and help someone that I've never met before find the answers to how they can heal their gut and as a way of healing their entire body, both body and brain, improving brain function, calming the nervous system. And that's really an evolution of what I've been working on. That's what gave birth to my second book here, The Gut Smart Protocol. One of the things we were talking about before we hit record was that you wrote this amazing first book on gut health, The Happy Gut, but this book actually helps people individualize it. How does the Gut Smart Protocol help people create an individualized gut plan through a book without even being in front of you? I took really the types of questions that I was asking my patients and also understanding that the gut is not just isolated to the gut. I created a quiz that asks 
a whole bunch of questions that are really meant to tease out all of the different things that could either affect gut health or are related to poor gut health. I might ask things about the skin, about asthma, about allergies, about acid reflux, gut-related symptoms, but also symptoms that might happen outside of the gut, like autoimmune disease. And based on that, then I give people a score. That score then translates into a category, mild, moderate, or severe. And then I took and created probably the most extensive food list divided into categories, mild, moderate, and severe, so that once a person has their score and they're wondering, how can I eat? What do I do then? Well, these are the foods that you can eat. And severe is limited to severe category. Moderates can eat moderate and severe. And milds can eat across all three categories. So it shows you how your diet can evolve as your gut health improves. And I encourage people to take the quiz do the program. There's a lot of recipes too. The book has 65 different recipes. These are actually pictures of some of the recipes in the book. And we divided recipes also into severe, moderate, and mild, creating more recipes for the severe category because that's the most limiting. And anybody can eat severe once, if you're mild or moderate, you can have a recipe that's been designed for somebody who has severe issues. That's basically the big overview the practical side of it. There's a lot more lifestyle, mind-body stuff, vagus nerve, other things that are super important for creating a good foundation for gut health that then creates a beautiful foundation for body and brain health. I'm so thankful you did this. And I really appreciate the analytical way you approached it, which just makes it so much easier to implement. You mentioned that there's seven categories of symptoms that are associated with leaky gut in the first few pages of your book. I think a lot of our clients or people who are listening probably think, well, I know what leaky gut is and it gives you belly pain. What are the other symptoms of leaky gut that might surprise people? First of all, let's define what leaky gut is. Leaky gut happens when your gut permeability is increased above what it's supposed to be. Because if you think about the gut is a semi-permeable membrane, like a coffee filter, and it's supposed to only let through the breakdown nutrients from your food, amino acids, carbohydrates, sugars, oligosaccharides, and fats. You don't want to let a lot of things get through that gut border. But let's say I take that coffee filter, and when you make a coffee, let's say you're making a pour over, I like to make at home where you put the coffee, the ground coffee beans in the filter, and then you pour the hot water and then it pours through. And on the other side, you want this beautiful coffee infused water. You don't want coffee grounds in there. Now, if I take that same coffee filter and now I poke a hundred little holes, tiny little holes in it, then I put the coffee grains and then I pour the hot water through, what's going to happen to the coffee grains? some of them are gonna seep through those little holes. That's exactly what happens when you have a leaky gut. Your gut lining becomes more permeable. It's almost like it develops tiny little holes in it. And through those holes, then things that are not supposed to slip through, like 
partially digested proteins that have an amino acid chain that our immune system then is going to react to and create an immune response to, or even inflammatory substances, or even bacteria can get through bacterial DNA, all types of things that then set the body on alert and turn on the immune system, which basically means then it turns on inflammation in the body. When you have leaky gut, then it increases the chances that you're going to have other symptoms and other parts of your body that are being fueled. It's the gut being leaky is the kerosene on the fire. It's fueling the flames of inflammation in the body. And that can manifest in many different ways. It can manifest in the brain as inflammation of the brain, which people would recognize as mood disorders. Being depressed has been called inflammation of the brain when the brain is on fire. Or breaking out in hives or different types of rashes, eczema, or having lung issues, asthma, or metabolism. It affects our ability to metabolize at a good rate and break down calories so you don't gain weight. It actually affects the balance of how our insulin works, causing more fat to accumulate in the middle when you've got leaky gut. It's connected to obesity and weight gain, as well as our energy levels, because when you have a leaky gut, it's going to affect the functioning of our mitochondria. Those are the tiny little energy factors inside every single cell in the body. They're these little energy factories, and you need them functioning well when you have leaky gut because of the types of inflammatory substances that come in causes mitochondrial dysfunction. But you're walking around and you're tired. You go to your doctor and your doctor checks your thyroid and tells you, well, your thyroid numbers are fine. But you'd say, but doctor, I'm still tired. And nobody knows what's going on. Well, it's probably because of the gut and mitochondrial dysfunction. I think we have to be careful to not blame things so easily on one thing and keeping our eyes open that the body is a complex ecosystem. And like any ecosystem, there could be more than one thing happening at the same time that together in aggregate is creating what we're seeing on the surface, a tired, mentally foggy, achy person who has maybe some gut issues or not. You don't have to have gut issues to have a gut-related health issue. You might have no gut symptoms whatsoever. And this is really important for people to realize because they might be thinking, well, this is not for me. I don't have any gut issues. I don't need to pay attention to this. Well, I've had so many patients who have had autoimmune disease who had no gut symptoms that they reported. But when I did gut testing, I found a lot of abnormalities and dysfunctions in the gut itself, including sometimes yeast overgrowth, parasites, things that are throwing off the system doesn't mean, even if you have a parasite, doesn't mean that you're going to have symptoms that let you know that you have that. And that's really key for people to understand. They might just be expressing it with rashes on the skin or maybe breaking out an eczema or psoriasis, or maybe they've got asthma or they're reacting to all sorts of environmental allergens. And you think that it's the environment, but it's actually what's happening inside your gut that's controlling the way that you react to the environment. Leaky gut is the gateway that opens up the possibility of a whole bunch of different 
diseases in a person. And the reason for that is probably a genetic individuality, the way for one person gets hives, another person gets eczema, another person gets allergies. Everybody's a bit unique, but we do see very similar patterns among people. And what they all have in common is they all have leaky gut. You mentioned you do testing to figure out if this is part of what's going on. And folks at home may be thinking, well, I went to my gastroenterologist or I went to my primary care and I even got a colonoscopy. I must have already been tested for that. Are you doing different testing than people are used to when you're looking for these gut issues? This is a big problem. And I think a huge misunderstanding of what gut tests show. When you go and you get a colonoscopy, that's only going to look at the structure. It's like you're looking at a building and you're looking to see if the building has some cracks on the wall. Does it have some holes or the areas where it needs repair? And you can see that at a big level in a colonoscopy. A lot of times they end up having to take some biopsy samples because there are things that might be too small for the eye to see. But you're only seeing the structure. You have no idea about how the system is functioning. And then you might go to your doctor and they do some stool tests and maybe they test you for three different parasites and then they do a stool culture, which is going to show very little. And maybe they'll look for gram stain to see if there are any white blood cells. And again, it's very limited information. It's very important to understand that not all stool tests are created equal. And when I'm looking at stool tests, I'm doing functional stool testing, looking at whole bunch of series of different markers, including the presence of unfavorable bacteria, the presence of good bacteria, probiotic bacteria, things like acromancia, which is so important for the mucus layer of the gut. And also looking at functional gut markers, like inflammatory markers, production of secretory IgA, pancreatic enzyme production, the absorption of fats, the breakdown of bile acids. We're looking at a much more comprehensive picture than the regular test that most people are getting when they go to their standard Western doctor, that most of them don't know and don't have a clue about this type of testing. And unfortunately, what that means is that there's a lot of people out there being told that they're fine when they're actually not fine. There's also breath testing. SIBO has been a big thing now, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. You can do breath testing for that. And there's, again, there's a lot of different types of breath tests. And some of them only measure two gases, methane and hydrogen. And then there's a breath test that measures all three, hydrogen, methane, and hydrogen sulfide. And depending on how the person is presenting, you may miss something if you don't test for all three. I want to help people understand why this is. Why would a gastroenterologist maybe not have time or the interest to go as deep as you're going? And what are they actually looking for? The quick answer to that is that that's how they are trained. And I know this because I was trained in internal medicine. I did the same foundational training that they all did. I completely understand the thinking. They weren't taught to use these other tests. And granted, a lot of these tests didn't exist when we were in medical school. These are tests that came out much later. Our understanding of the gut microbiome is something that has just exploded in the last 20 years. If we go back 20 some years in the past and we said to somebody microbiome, they would look at you cross-eyed and like, what are you talking about? Nobody talked about that. 
20 plus years ago. There's just a lot of things that Western medicine has not paid attention to. But hopefully, I think things are slowly trickling in and changing. And it's just they didn't get trained in that. And the other thing is, if someone's a gastroenterologist, which I'm not, I'm an internal medicine, functional medicine specialized with a focus on gut health from a functional perspective, I don't do procedures. I don't put tubes in people's mouths or through their behinds to look inside. I will sometimes send them to a gastroenterologist. It's important to be able to do those procedures. But to be frank and honest, I then tell them to come back to me and don't follow the instructions of the gastroenterologist because their approach to gut health is antiquated. And unfortunately, it's based on a pharmaceutical-driven approach to health. And maybe there's a role for that at some points in relation to some acute gut health issues. But there's so much that can be done through diet, lifestyle, and supplements to improve the functioning of the gut that a lot of times you don't need to go the medication route. Yeah. And I love how you explain that. I think if you're a gastroenterologist, you're used to doing procedures and even surgeries on structural issues in the gut. So things that you can scope somebody and see. You can see the pathology. You can see the erosion. You can see something that needs to be repaired or removed. If there's nothing that you can structurally see that's wrong, usually we'll term it functional gastrointestinal disorder. And at that point, that lands in your clinic. Honestly, it's also based on a system that has a few narrow options for different diagnoses. If you go to a gastroenterologist and they do a scope on you and they see gastritis, they're going to automatically think, well, let's put you on a proton pump inhibitor and we need to reduce your acid production. We need to protect you. They're not thinking about all the downstream effects that are caused by interrupting stomach acid production and instead thinking, okay, there's gastritis. Is there zinc deficiency? Maybe the person doesn't have enough zinc to repair the gastric mucosa. What other things might they be missing or that we could use? DGL, deglycerinated licorice, aloe vera, slippery elm bark, marshmallow root, natural things that can help coax the system back to health and stress management as well, which is super key and important. The conversation that I'm having with the patient is very different from the regular Western model which is basically diagnose, figure out what drug you can give a person and get them out the door and do this in less than 15 minutes. Yeah, I'm wondering how long's the average appointment or initial appointment at your practice in comparison? The average Western medicine appointment, I think is anywhere between seven and 15 minutes. It's really shortened. And the typical appointment in my office is 30 minute minimum and usually an hour long. Yeah. Depends on the patient. It depends on how many chronic issues we're working on. The amount of time that it takes to help support people through lifestyle and dietary changes and taking the right supplements, the, the natural approach to health, it takes more handholding. And honestly, you're covering such a bigger ground because I don't just deal with the issue that's in front of me and just look at it like myopically. But I'm thinking about if the person comes in and they've got some gut issues, well, what's going on in your life? Are you stressed? Well, why are you stressed? What's going on at work? What's going on at home? What is it that's going on in your outside life 
that is affecting your internal environment? And how can I help and support you in ways that you can make all of these things in better improve them so that your gut health can get better and then your body feels better. I love that total root cause approach, medical detective work, all the things. Now you have a whole chapter of your book dedicated to the microbiome. And you mentioned in the last decade or two, we've had an explosion of research in this field. What's your favorite thing to talk about when it comes to the microbiome these days? I think the, just the, the, burgeoning research on what is the best diet for the gut, which is really what is the best diet for microbiome, and really how to diversify the gut microbiome. Because I do a lot of gut testing on people who have been on multiple antibiotics, who've been not eating the greatest diet, and you do see a loss of diversity. And when I say diversity, it's exactly what the word implies. It's variety. We have typically around 500 to 1,000 different species of bacteria in our gut, out of which 10 to 15% of those in a healthy gut are quote-unquote bad guys, but they seem to serve some sort of purpose, same as in a rainforest has some predators and they keep things in balance. But the key and the important thing is maintaining that diversity because what they've found is that the more diverse your gut is, then the less inflammation you have in your body. And inflammation is like the kerosene to the fire. It is the driving force for every single chronic degenerative disease on the planet. If we can turn off inflammation, that is the key. And right now, these are not the sexy, hyper-funded studies that the pharmaceutical industry does on medications dietary interventions looking at what happens if you do this, then what happens to the gut microbiome? And a big study that I talked about in my book, <laughs> The Gut Smart Protocol, was a Stanford study that was done on a small cohort of people where they looked at a fiber-rich diet versus a high-fermented foods diet and looking at the effects on the gut microbiome and then the effects on 19 different inflammatory markers. And what they found was that eating more fermented foods increased gut diversity and lowered inflammation more than just having high fiber. Fascinating. My philosophy is that we need a mix of both, that we actually need a combination of fiber and fermented foods in order to have a diverse and balanced ecosystem. And there was actually another study that was done on this that looked at stress scores in a four-week study where they actually combined it. They put people on what we sometimes call a psychobiotic diet, a diet that's supporting the microbiome in order to support mental health. And this particular program, they looked at increasing fiber as well as increasing fermented foods. Kind of a really, a very ideally balanced diet with about four to six servings of fiber per day are fiber-rich foods, and two to three servings are fermented foods. Now, most people aren't hitting the mark in either of those. Most people are not getting enough fiber through dark leafy greens, garlic, onions, leeks, greens, dandelion greens, things like that. And most people are eating less than half a cup, if at all, of any ferments per day. What they did was they looked at this group and they compared it to a control group where they just gave them 
general dietary advice, like reduce your sugar, don't eat processed foods, but they didn't actually give them any advice around increasing fiber and ferments. And what they found was that the intervention group that had a higher fiber, high fermented food intake, not as high as the Stanford study on the fermented foods, they dropped their stress score by about 36% versus the control group, which was a control diet. Maybe they should have done a third group that they just let them eat whatever crap they want to eat, French fries, pizza, all that stuff. But the control group dropped by 17%. The change in the diet actually doubled the number of people who dropped and how much they dropped by in their stress score. And then they looked at the group that was doing the diet intervention and they decided, well, let's look at their compliance also. They had them tracking their compliance because everybody has a different level of discipline and compliance. You can't expect that everybody who was in the diet group was eating the four to six servings of fiber and the two to three servings of fermented foods every day. And what they found was that the more compliant they were, the higher the drop in their stress score at the end of the four weeks. And this is really key because then it shows you, yeah, this stuff works and it works best if you actually do it. I find it so interesting. And I really love that you wrote this book on gut health because you have a clinic that's designed to help peak performers and people with mystery chronic illnesses to feel their best. You also have another really unique area of expertise that I was hoping you could talk about today. I saw that you did research after your residency on environmental pollutants and their impact on human health. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, this was a very specific project that I was involved with. I was in training in New York during 9-11. When I was finishing my residency, there was an opportunity to join a new clinical research program that was being started by the Department of Environmental and Community Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York to look at the environmental effects of having been exposed to the pile, the burning pile at the World Trade Center site for people who were recovery workers. It was really clinical. We were looking to see, are there chronic ongoing symptoms that people were dealing with? And these specifically were people that were not policemen and not firefighters because the policemen and the firefighters were covered they had their own insurance. This was really to help all of the people who were not in a union, who didn't have an insurance that would cover monitoring and looking at the health effects, both physical and mental, emotional health effects. Now, if I were to be doing that program now, this was when I finished my training in internal medicine. If I were to be doing this program again, I would say we need to look at gut, functional gut measures, because a lot of these people were coming in with chronic runny nose, nasal congestion, and all of that can be connected to gut health as well. And two, I would have said we need to do an environmental toxin panel and look at what these people are harboring. And those are things that they weren't doing. I think we were I'm trying to remember if we were doing, we were doing some simple blood work looking at markers for inflammation, things that might be off, why blood cells 
But that program could certainly have been redesigned in a much more robust way with a functional medicine approach using a lot of the incredible testing that we have now available to look at environmental toxins as well, as well as looking at gut health, because we know that all of that is related. A lot of the people that I saw were actually asbestos removers who had been hired to go and help get out the asbestos from the buildings that were damaged. We really didn't have, other than traditional screening tools, that's what we were using. It would have been nice to look at more extensive testing with these patients. But I think this program is actually still ongoing. And when I was there, we were mostly focused on the physical health. I was there as part of the initial team that took it off the ground from concept to actually launching, starting to see patients. And after I left, they brought in ENTs and then I think they brought in psychologists or psychiatrists because we found that there was a lot of ongoing mental health issues as well for some of the people, especially depending on their experiences there. It's interesting. And you mentioned that now in your practice, you run an environmental toxin panel. For someone who's not familiar with that, what are you checking for and how are you checking for it? Is it a breath test? Is it a stool test? What are you using? can be blood and urine. And it's looking for a variety of different toxins from things that we might be exposed to that polyaromatic hydrocarbons to glyphosate. I also look at mycotoxins in the urine, people who might have been exposed to mold or live in a mold contaminated building. And I have to say, I've been shocked with the number of people who test positive for glyphosate and glyphosate being a pesticide. And even I had two cases of people who had very high glyphosate levels who ate organic and ate quite healthy, but maybe at some point in their lives had been exposed. One of them actually had worked at an airport spraying a pesticide that had glyphosate for many years. And they were given a mask, but most of them didn't wear a mask. They were inhaling the fumes. I think probably accumulated from his lifetime. Yeah, there's a lot of different pollutants that can come in from fire retardants to pesticides that aren't being cleared, that it's important because they all disrupt our health. I think people may think, well, yeah, I'm definitely exposed to that stuff probably, but what would I even do about it? Besides eat organic, drink filtered water, try not to bring things that you know are toxic into your home. Are there any nutrients or supplements or things that you do when you find toxins? The number one thing is to first, of course, modify behavior and avoid the things that are potentially, you don't want to keep filling the bucket. You want to try to stop filling the bucket as much as possible. And secondly, you can use all sorts of binders, things to help improve body detoxification pathways, L-glutathione, liposomal glutathione, all sorts of things, improving the gut border, working on gut health, foundational gut health as well. And that's basically the protocol. And hopefully if it's an occupational exposure, changing their exposure, if it's a mold exposure, having them move out of the moldy apartment if they can, really changing the environment is first and key and then working on things that can help pull out these environmental toxins, whether it's binders or chelators, if it's heavy metals, 
et cetera. You have a really strong mind-body component in your practice. And I have to believe it's because you have a yoga background and experience with acupuncture. Can you talk to us about your philosophy of the place of the mind and the spirit in functional medicine care? Yeah, I think that mind-body-spirit medicine in many ways goes beyond functional medicine because it's tied to the roots of humanity. And it's really about connecting to something that's within all of us and we all have a desire for. And yet a lot of people just don't have the tools to get there. And that's how I felt when I was a kid because I was super stressed out. I was a very high achiever. You would probably say I was a type A type of kid. And I was always aiming to get the highest score in every subject. I had an incredible amount of pressure on myself. And at some point, you can't keep a system running at that high level of pressure without at some point the system is going to break down. And I realized that it wasn't going to serve me. And the biggest motivator actually was my fear of needles and knowing that I wanted to become a doctor. And yet worried that I would not be able to become a doctor because I really had a fear of needles. And how was I going to reconciliate the two? I could have thought, well, maybe I can medicate it. Maybe I should go to the doctor and ask, is there a way for me to help with the anxiety that I feel around needles? But instead of doing that, I decided to look deeper and ask, what is the process going on inside of my body that is triggering the response that happens to me around needles. And it was almost like a PTSD response. And I would go into vasovagal and end up basically passing out. And this can happen to people for a variety of reasons. They could be stressed out at work. There's a lot of things that maybe don't lead to vasovagal response, but they amp up the nervous system. And certainly on the background of that, I had a very hyperactive monkey brain that just wouldn't stop. And to the point, well, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I feel like everybody does at some point during the teenage years where the internal dialogue doesn't stop, but almost to the point where it's torturing you and it's creating all these stories and you just feel debilitated and handicapped by your own mind because you just can't get it to stop. And that's very similar to how I felt at the time when I discovered breath work and meditation and yoga. And I went on a journey at 21 years old to rewire my brain because I decided that I did not want to be this way anymore. It wasn't an overnight thing, but I found that the more I did it, the more I was able to rewire myself. And the biggest evidence was how people perceived me from the outside. I had been meditating, doing breath work and yoga for about eight months before I started medical school. And then I continued it during medical school. And in my first semester at medical school, everybody would come up to me and they would say, how are you so calm? Wow. Why are you so calm all the time? They used to call me the Zen guy because I was always great. like, you could catch me at 10 p.m. the night before a big test and I was calm. And the secret weapon that I had in my pocket was that I was meditating 
Now, had I known what I know now, and I would have really worked on my diet and brought in more, I was eating greens and stuff, but maybe not enough fermented foods to brought in the fermented foods and add that to the mind-body techniques, which I talk about in my book because I think that the vagus nerve and the connection between the gut and the brain is really key and important for healing the body and healing any chronic health issue. You've got to create safety in the body and you've got to optimize that connection between the gut and the brain. And it can be done through many different hacks. And one of the pathways is through breath work, another pathway through meditation. And then there's a whole bunch of other different hacks that I talk about in my book. But what I found is that you can't out diet and you can't out supplement a stressed out lifestyle. Well, I might need you to say that again. <laughs> and I probably should add that you can't out medicate a stressed out lifestyle. It's so interesting. We have so many high performers who watch their colleagues who are pulling 80 to 100 hour weeks and they're drinking soda and they're eating fast food and they seem fine. Quote unquote, fine, fine in quotation marks. Yeah, what do you say to people who might be like, I want to biohack my way to being able to work 100 hours a week. Give me the peptides, give me the supplements. What do you say to those folks? Why do you want to do that? <laughs> First of all. <laughs> Fair. Okay, right to the root. Why do you want to do that? Start listening to Tim Ferriss, the four-hour work week. Do more with less. No, look, I'm really passionate about what I do. I dedicate a lot of hours during the day. What I've learned actually is that there are certain things that I can accomplish really well when I'm in the right mindset. And if I'm in the wrong mindset or my body's not feeling well or I'm not in the properly fed state or my blood sugar is swinging, then that same task can take me twice, three times, four times as long because my internal state doesn't support it in the moment. Yeah, you can power through at some point. You're going to pay for it later. I think I always tell people what you're doing now, if you're 40, what you're doing is you're basically building the foundation, you can arrive to 50 healthier. And if you're 50, you're building the foundation for 60. And if you're 60, you're building the foundation for 70. We're always building the foundation into the future. What you do now is going to affect how you feel later on. And those sodas and all of the things that you do to power through your system are going to catch up with you at some point. Because at some point, your body's just going to say, I'm done. I can't anymore. And then you're going to have the big wake-up call. So I try to get people to have the wake-up call before being forced to have the wake-up call and do the right things, balance their workday. Now, not everybody has the privilege and possibility of doing this. I'm self-employed. I can choose what I do at different moments of the day, depending on if I have patients scheduled or not. If I have a schedule, then I'm regimented and I'm going by the schedule. But on days that I don't have a defined schedule and I have five tasks in front of me, I know that in order to get through those tasks, I may not be able to do all five tasks sequentially. Maybe I decide, okay, I'm going to do a hard one, then an easy one. And then now my brain is going to ask for a break. Maybe I need to take a breath work break. Maybe I need to do a meditation. Maybe I go to the gym and move my body. And then I come back to task number three, 
then maybe I need to eat something, make sure my blood sugar stays stable, and then I go to task four and five. A lot of it is developing your own inner intuition. And I call it before meal, during meal, and after meal intuition to really understand how it is that you need to be. You're the CEO of your body. You need to manage, instead of being the consequence or the victim of your body, and you're just constantly just reacting to what's happening. Well, my blood sugar is low now. Low, let me have a, some chocolate. Or now I'm feeling really tired. Let me have some caffeine. Well, looking at the bigger picture of, okay, you are the CEO of your body. You're the one who decides what comes in, what goes out. What type of fuel, what type of nutrients are you choosing to put into your body? And that's going to affect your performance and when. Really learning to regulate that, and that involves a lot of self-awareness and self-reflection and discipline as well. It depends on the person. We're disciplined by the things that we have obligations for, but if you're a self-employed person who has not, doesn't have a, a well-structured schedule, then you need to look at what are the things that you do well in a fasted state? What are the things that you need to have energy for? Make sure that you do those when your stomach is full. And what are the things that you do really well in the morning and you don't do so well in the afternoon? And then plan your day out based on when you are going to be optimal to do the different tasks that you have in your day, listening to your body, developing that gut intuition. Gut intuition. It's bringing it all back together. Because <laughs> we do. We have an intuition that does live in our gut. You can feel it. You can feel your gut react when things aren't right or when you are on track or when you have a gut feeling about something. Somebody might be thinking, well, I don't have 10 years to meditate or get on Dr. Pedre's level. Do you recommend people work with a coach or how can they fast track this type of intuition and awareness? Or is it just you have to meditate? Read my book. Love it. <laughs> you know what I've been doing lately? I don't know why I never thought about this before. And it's actually become a hack that is getting me through books in a way that I never could before because I used to think, oh, I read at bedtime. I'll read a book at bedtime. But inevitably what happens, it's been a long day. You sit down to read and then one page in, you're already starting to nod off. Instead, what I've started doing is I have a morning routine. My morning routine starts with either some journaling. Sometimes I start with my journal and I'll write what I'm grateful for, which is all, something I talked a lot about in Happy Gut, the importance of gratitude. Then I'll write about what is it that I want to call in for the day? How would it feel? And what actions do I need to take to do that? Then I meditate. And then once I'm done meditating, I take my phone, I set a timer for the amount of minutes I know I have at that point before I need to get ready for my day. And I read until the timer goes off. And switching the reading to the morning, but also taking the, I think always I felt like this. When I read, I felt almost like a lack of accomplishment if I didn't read a big chunk at once. You feel like, oh, I only read a few pages. But now that I've added a timer to it, I feel the accomplishment that, oh, I read for 10 minutes. It's a win for me, whereas before I would have thought, well, I only got through this much. I don't feel like I've really read. 
And actually doing that, I went through a book faster than I've ever gone through a book. Now I'm on my second book and I have a third one on the way. It's just developing those routines. I talk about that in my book, the importance of routine and self-discipline. And you have to recognize what works for you. For me, when I have structure, I feel better. I feel better about myself when my day is organized, when I accomplish a certain set of things right before I start my workday, I feel really good inside. You've got to find what is it that makes you feel good other than I'm not saying like someone might say, well, I feel good when I drink a soda. Well, but really think about, do you really feel good? Does it really fuel your soul, your heart? your internal sense of well-being. It's interesting because your books seem like they're about the gut, but really they're about your life and everything you do. They're about much more than just the gut. The gut is just the entry point to healing the body. And my books talk a lot about my philosophy. My first book had yoga in it. This book has a whole section on the mind-body connection, and how to optimize that for better overall health. Anybody that reads the book is going to get way more out of it than just improving their gut health. I want to thank you so much, yeah, for being here. I really appreciate your time. And people are going to want to stay in contact with you and keep learning from you. Talk about your website, where people can find you on social, the names of your books. My latest book is The Gut Smart Protocol, and you can find it everywhere where books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any bookseller. You can learn more about it if you go to gutsmartprotocol.com. And I actually have some freebies there for people. They can download the quiz for free. They can download a free chapter as well. My other website is happygutlife.com. And that's based on basically a company whose mission is to help people live healthier and happier lives through a happy gut. And it has products and programs for gut health, as well as, depending on when this podcast airs, a membership portal that we'll be starting with group coaching, as well as digital courses. And I'll be creating my first digital course on gut brain mastery, just coming out in 2024. I'm super excited about that. And anybody can find any of that information by going to happygutlife.com and joining the newsletter. And then my biggest social right now is Instagram at Dr. Pedre. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for writing your books as well. I think it's always really remarkable when we get to interview a clinician who has a successful private practice. You could keep all this a secret and charge tens of thousands of dollars a year for it, but you've chosen to democratize access to it and to give it to the world. I really just want to say thank you for your generosity with that. Thank you. I really appreciate that. We'll talk with you soon. Talk to you soon. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we appreciate it so much. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.